Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This passage today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, titled Ministers of the New Covenant. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written in our hearts, and to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves or to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not to the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is God's word. Is our ministry at Westgate supernatural? Is it the work of the Holy Spirit, or is it the work of man? Do we prize inward transformation or outward conformity? Do we use divine or human measurements to gauge our success? These are the questions that are raised in our passage this morning. Paul faced opponents whose ministry was earthly, They promoted themselves, they depended on their personal abilities, and they focused on what people saw rather than what God treasures. Paul offered a supernatural ministry, fully dependent on and led by God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning, who are we more like? Let's pray. Father, I confess that so often I I function out of human strength, out of personal abilities, and not in dependence upon your spirit. Lord, I pray that uh, you speak deeply again to me through this passage this morning, that you speak to us as elders who lead this church, and you speak to each one of us this morning and answering our desire to be a supernatural work of you. Lead us this morning, O God. Amen. Last week's passage concluded with Paul contrasting his ministry with religious salesmen. I read from chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. See, apparently Paul's opponents were peddlers of God's word. Their goal was to get a response that would profit themselves. Their method was to impress and to manipulate. And they'd use whatever method it took to win people over to themselves. 
On the other hand, Paul practiced his ministry as though he stood in the presence of God. He spoke God's truth with complete sincerity, even if it would cost him personally. Paul's ministry was God-centered. His message was God's message. While he personalized it to the needs and perspectives of his audience, he never manipulated them. You know, we see this in Paul's message at the Areopagus when he speaks to the philosophers and he uses one of the idols that they're worshiping to introduce his message. He quotes their, philo- their poets in building his case. When he spoke to the Jews, he spoke as though he was a Jew. He spoke in ways they understood. When he spoke to the Gentiles, he spoke as a Gentile would, connecting with them. When he spoke to the Pharisees, he reminded them that he, too, had been a Pharisee. He connected, but he never manipulated his audience He never compromised the gospel, and he was never self-serving. The same was true of Jesus. He spoke differently to Nicodemus and to the woman at the well. To Nicodemus, he confronted self-righteousness and told him he had to be born again. But he spoke tenderly to this broken woman, this broken Samaritan woman, promising her to meet her greatest need. The first mark of a supernatural ministry is that while we connect the gospel to the specific needs and the lives of others, it's always presented as though we stand in God's presence. It's always authentic, and it always speaks truth. Now, this morning's passage is going to point to three more marks of the supernatural ministry. Transformed lives, divine sufficiency, and a new covenant ministry. So we start with the first mark. You know, as we read through 2 Corinthians, we can, we can feel the tension between Paul and his opponents. Tension that the Corinthians must have felt as they wavered between which party they're going to follow. And certainly they wanted to follow God. So their question was, who was truly following God? Paul or his opponents? So... Paul, in order to show that he is God's minister, bringing God's ministry to the people, he presents his case by pointing to the Corinthians' transformed lives as evidence that God was working through him. Our passage opens in chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need to do with some letters of recommendation to you? Or from you. See, Paul had just made a lofty assertion. He contrasted himself with peddlers of God's word, and he said, I speak in the presence of God. I am speaking God's word. Now, this led Paul to anticipate the charge that the only evidence for his case was his self attestation. His opponents most likely offered letters of recommendation from other people. So where was Paul's letter of recommendation? And so he writes 
that his letter of regular, excuse me, his letter of recommendation was the Corinthians themselves. You know, just like today, letters of recommendation were very important. They would introduce a person, an unknown person, to another group so that they might gain uh, employment or receive hospitality. And Paul himself wrote uh, letters like this. We see one in Romans 16. He's right. I commend you, our sister in Phoebe, a servant of the church of St. Crea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Help her in whatever way she may have need of you, for she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. So letters of recommendation were important. Paul asks the Corinthians to compare his letter of recommendation with theirs. And that letter, as he says, is the Corinthians Verses 2 and 3. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you're a letter of Christ just delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of of human hearts. As we notice, their lives was a letter first written on Paul's heart. See, Paul was not a disengaged minister. Whatever the Corinthians went through, his heart would rise or fall. And we see this in 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians, after he talks about all that he suffered for the case of Christ. He writes, and apart from these other things, there's daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak that I am not weak? Who is made to fail that I am not indignant? See, Paul's heart was entwined with their lives. His opponents used the Corinthians as sources of income, stepping stones to enhance their image. Paul had their hearts, their lives written on his heart. Now, this letter of commendation was also evident to everyone around them. The Corinthians' lives were witnessed by everyone who knew them their friends, their families, their neighbors, even stories of them would go beyond the city itself. Everyone could read and affirm Paul's letter of recommendation. It was also a letter from Christ himself. It was a work of Christ. Jesus drew them to himself. He led them, and he was making them more and more into his own image. Paul's role was simply to deliver that message. It's Jesus who wrote his word and his will into their lives. And he did it by the Holy Spirit. You know, 1 Corinthians 9 gives us a little picture of that letter that was written when he writes, 
do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So these sins were rampant in the Corinthian church. Those were the, that was the lives they were living. But Jesus Christ entered in and it continues. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Jesus' ink was the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit convicted them of their sins. He cleansed them. He encouraged their growth. He confronted their missteps. And he guided them into righteous living. The Holy Spirit does that for us as well. He fills us with his fruit. He makes Jesus Christ real to us. He opens our hearts, tenderizes our hearts to receive the, the word of God as it speaks personally to each one of us. He's at work in our hearts, changing us from the inside out. See, a mark of the supernatural ministry, it's not the number of attendees, the size of the budget, the quantity of programs, the resumes of the staff, or the number of live stream viewers. It's lives changed by the Holy Spirit. The second mark of the supernatural ministry is divine sufficiency, our dependence on and confidence in God to work. See, Paul's opponents would, would twist Paul's writing to make it sound as though he was, he was patting himself on the back, that he was taking uh, credit for the transformed lives of the Corinthians. And so Paul had to make it abundantly clear that it wasn't him, but it was the work of God. And so he wrote uh, in verses th 4 and 5, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. See, in these words, we can see that Paul is both humble and confident. And see, those two qualities don't often come together in a person. Because if, if we are confident and we speak about our role in ministry, we'll look like we're self-serving or arrogant and not humble. On the other hand, if we continually give credit away, we'll sound like we're self-effacing and not confident. But see, those two qualities come together in Paul and they can come together in us in Jesus Christ. As Paul says, his confidence is in Jesus Christ and Christ's work through him. He was confident in his standing before God because he was rescued by Christ. He was confident in his calling because he was commissioned by Christ. He was confident that God would work through him because his gifts came from Christ. And he was confident that the Holy Spirit was working through him because he abided in Christ. And he was humble because he didn't rescue himself. He didn't gift himself. He didn't earn his commission from God. 
And everything he accomplished was from the Holy Spirit itself. He was simply a vessel, the one who delivered the message. He was the vessel through whom God was working, a clay pot carrying in him a treasure of Jesus Christ. We can be confident because of what Christ has done in us, but humble because we knew Christ has done it, not we ourselves. In chapter 2, Paul spoke of being the fragrance of Christ. And he added, who is sufficient for these things? He didn't feel sufficient. He didn't feel capable of being God's vessel through which God would actually transform lives through the gospel that he preached. Have you ever felt insufficient? Have you ever felt that you you can't accomplish it? That you don't have the ability to convince others of the truth of the gospel? That you're incapable of cutting through their doubts and their questions? That you aren't properly gifted for such a sacred calling? That you may cause more harm than good when you share the gospel. If you feel that way, you're in good company. That's what Paul felt when he said he wasn't sufficient, but God is. You're in the company of Moses who said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And Gideon, who responded to God's call with the please. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah, who responded to God's call, saying, Oh, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. In each case, God said, I'll be with you. We're in the right place if we feel inadequate because then we will depend on God and not ourselves. When our previous pastor, Brandon Levering, candidated at our church, he was asked the question, what will you bring to Westgate? His answer was, nothing but the gospel of Jesus. You know, That was music to our ears at Westgate because we had just gone through a hard time. We'd been through a conflict that uncovered an ugly underbelly of us. We had consultants come in and point out 14 weaknesses in our church. We felt very inadequate. And so when we had a candidate say, I'm inadequate, but the gospel isn't. We knew we were on the right person. We need to live in that sense and that feeling. It's God who is at work, and he will be with us, even if we feel like Moses, Gideon, or Jeremiah, or the Apostle Paul. You know, Charles... Spurgeon preached a sermon that he really felt was his worst. 
And so he prayed, Lord, you can do something with nothing. Bless that poor sermon. And he prayed that every day throughout the week. The next week, he was ready now, and he preached what he felt was one of his best sermons ever. He went home very pleased with himself. Then he decided to watch the results of each of those sermons. And eventually, he discovered that that poor sermon led to 41 people coming to Jesus Christ. He couldn't find one soul saved from his great sermon. And he knew... It's not me, it's God. You know, a weakness in Christ's church today is that we don't really seem to believe this. Trevin Wax wrote, I fear that we've lost confidence in the gospel as the saving power of God. One reason we don't share the gospel very often is that we don't feel qualified. We think we'll get something wrong. We lack confidence in ourselves and in the gospel but the power of the gospel is not in us in our presentation only the Holy Spirit has the power to open hearts strategies methods and presentations are merely tools the gospel itself is powerful and it deserves our full confidence as Paul wrote in Romans 1 16 I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The marks of the supernatural ministry are transformed lives and a humble dependence on and confidence in God's sufficiency and a ministry to the heart, a new covenant ministry. You know, early we read about Paul's letter of recommendation being written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. And so verses 5 and 6 unpack that, where we read, our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Paul's opponents apparently focused on the letter of the law. Since Paul later accuses them of preaching a false gospel, they most likely were preaching a legalistic system of religious works. If the Corinthians obeyed God's commands, then God would accept them. If they kept God's laws, then they could earn salvation. Paul exposed the fatal flaw of this way of thinking when he stated, the letter kills. Now, he wasn't saying that the letter, or the, he wasn't saying that the, the law was bad. He was saying it was being misused. See, the Mosaic law is a good thing. It reveals the character of God, God's moral standards, and it points to a path of obedience to God's will. The flaw is that the law isn't able to help us keep its standards. It has no power in it but to convict. It can tell us what to do, but it can't empower us to follow its commands. The result is we all miserably fail to keep God's law. 
Who is holy like God is holy? Who is perfect like God is perfect? Who truly reflects the image of God? And that's what the law is trying to show us. None of us. You know, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're living righteously, like the Pharisee who, in Jesus' parables, went up to the temple and prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. You know, when we fool ourselves like this, it's because we're looking at the outward, not at what the dynamics of our hearts. The most revered sermon in history is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is really speaking of the law, but showing its real intent to go after our hearts. You know, Jesus says, well, we say, do not murder. And Jesus says, if you're angry, you're guilty of murder. We say, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. We say, love your neighbor. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, be perfect for the Lord your God is perfect. We say, we got to look out for ourselves. And Jesus' life says, consider one another more important than yourselves. None of us measures up to that. We're all guilty. And the wages of sin is death. And so that's how the letter of the law brings death. Romans three nineteen through 20 gives us one of the main purposes of the law. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We read the law and we say, I don't measure up. And I'm in trouble because I'm accountable to God. I need somebody to save me. It prepares us for the coming of Jesus Christ. In contrast, the new covenant brings us life because it brings us forgiveness in Christ. He is that Savior. It offers us a new heart and it gifts us with an indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us and empowers us to walk in the will of God. The covenant is described in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean from all unrighteousness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove that heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you, and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. See, the, the old covenant didn't, doesn't empower us to obey God. It convicts us of disobeying God. The new covenant offers us forgiveness 
and empowers us to obey God by giving us the Holy Spirit who transforms our hearts to align with God's heart. It's not simply outward obedience. It's obedience that flows from a changed heart as our hearts of flesh beat as one with God's heart. See, Paul's ministry of the new covenant brought life, not death. It brought forgiveness. It addressed the heart. His opponent's ministry brought judgment and only addressed the external. The difference is found in the gospels that they preached. The opponents preached a false gospel that misused Mosaic law. Paul preached a true gospel of the new covenant by pointing to the cross of Christ. It's that new covenant was established at the cross, and we declare that every time we lift the communion cup and re recite Jesus' words, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Drink it in remembrance of me. See, the foundation of the new covenant is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's the death of Christ on the cross where he took our place, where he took the judgment we deserved as he was crucified as our substitute. And we're brought into this covenant when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. When we place our faith in him, by crying out like the tax collector in Jesus' parable who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's when we recognize, yes, we are sinners, and when we stand before God, we deserve his judgment, and so we cry out for his mercy, for him to provide a savior for us, and he did in Jesus Christ. And so when we find that Savior in Christ, we become partakers of the new covenant. We become new creatures in Christ with new hearts of flesh, new spirits, and we begin a journey with the Holy Spirit who will be transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the supernatural ministry. That's of Christ and not of us. You know, our passage offers us three marks of the supernatural church. The emphasis is on transformed lives and not the number of attendees. The church depends upon the sufficiency of God rather than our own skills. And the church lives out the covenant of grace, hearts of flesh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by preaching the true gospel and keeping that gospel at the center of our lives. See, Tim Chester describes what it means to keep the gospel at the center of our lives by contrasting Odysseus with Jason's response to the sirens. In Greek mythology, the sirens were beautiful women who sang enchanting songs. Their songs drove sailors to crash their ships on the rocks. So Odysseus was warned about this by Circe and she advised him to plug the sailors' ears with wax, which they did. Odysseus himself had himself tied to the mast. So when they heard the music, they were able to not hear it 
except for Odysseus, who was restrained, and they were able to pass through. They endured the temptations in that way. When Jason led his Argonauts past the sirens, he had Orpheus play such beautiful music on his harp that the sailors ignored the seduction of the sirens. The grace of God sings a more beautiful song than the enticement of sin. The gospel is what we need to be listening to. You see, there's many voices that'll sing to us. They'll sing that they can fulfill our, our, our need for love, belonging, our, our need for significance, or provide security for us. Now, if we listen to their music, we will crash our lives. We need to listen to the music of the gospel that declares that the God of creation loves us so much. He sent his son for us. That we are so significant to him that the price he paid was not gold, silver, or precious stones, but it was the blood of Christ himself. That we can find our security in the gospel knowing that if he gave the life of his son, we can entrust him with our lives because he wants the best for us and he's already proven that at the cross. The grace of the gospel sings a far more glorious song than the enticement of sin. The supernatural church is always listening to that glorious song. And always proclaiming it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that uh, will confront us, like this passage this morning, but also encourage us with your grace to remind ourselves that when we fail, your grace is there to lift us that Jesus Christ is so, love is so great, it covers all of our failings, all of our sin. It's all taken away as far as the east is from the west. And then, Lord, to know that you gave us also your spirit, a supernatural power that Paul had and Spurgeon had, everyone who didn't find confidence in themselves and led them to find confidence in you. Our Father, we thank you for the gifts that you provide in that new covenant which is established in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. May we live at the foot of the cross, continually listening to the beautiful song of the grace it brings us, the hope it brings us, the encouragement it brings us in the life it guides us to live. Amen.